Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you probably know that Athletic Brewing Company is my absolute favorite non-alcoholic beer. For me, finding an incredible non-alcoholic beer to drink around the fire pit or at a dinner was a game changer in sobriety. And I love Athletic so much that I became a brand ambassador so that I could share the love. You can save 20% with code KCD20 on your first order of Athletic at their website. Now, they are not sponsoring this ad, but I wanted to share this discount if you wanted to try it out. So my personal favorites are their Golden Upside Dawn and their Run Wild IPA, but I want to hear what your favorites are. Just go to Athletic brewing.com and enter the code KCD20 at checkout. That's C-A-S-E-Y-D-2-0 and you'll save 20% on your first order. Well, hi there. I'm really excited for the podcast today because I get to bring on Jean McCarthy for a conversation about her collection of poetry which is coming out tomorrow, June 19th, if you're listening to this podcast on the day of its release. The book of poetry is called The Ember Ever There, Poems on Change, Grief, Growth, Recovery, and Rediscovery. It is wonderful. And Jean McCarthy is a wonderful human being as well. Many of you may know her from the Bubble Hour podcast, which she has been the host of for many years. She is an award-winning blogger and podcaster who's best known as a voice for recovery advocacy. Jean is also the author of Unpickled, A Holiday Survival Guide, Staying Alcohol-Free During the Festive Season, which is a resource about sobriety for people in recovery and for their families. Her blog, Unpickled, began in 2011 and has continued to chronicle Jean's alcohol-free lifestyle since her first day of sobriety. Thousands of readers credit Unpickled as a motivating factor in their decision to quit drinking. Now, Jean joined the Bubble Hour podcast as a co-host 
back in 2013, and she took over the weekly program as its sole producer and host in 2016. I got to know Jean years ago and actually went on the Bubble Hour podcast to share my story of drinking and life after drinking last year. Jean's also a former performing songwriter. She has two albums of original music to her credit. Fans of the Bubble Hour podcast will already be familiar with the show's theme song, I Own It, which is actually a single from Jean's 2008 album, Blessings and Burdens. And at a gala in New York City in 2017, Jean was a recipient of the She Recovers Hope Award in recognition of all her efforts to help others seek positive changes in their lives. So Jean, I am so excited that you were willing to come on this podcast and talk about your new book of poetry. I've gone through it a couple times and it is absolutely beautiful and wonderful. Aw, thank you. That touches my heart. And I'm happy to be here. It's really cool because it's not that long ago that I interviewed you, Casey, on the Bubble Hour. And congratulations on your new podcast. And thank you for inviting me to be one of your guests. Yeah, well, I I wanted to have you on. And the book of poetry, The Ember Ever There, Poems on Change, Grief, Growth, Recovery, and Rediscovery, is so perfect because I started listening to the bubble hour. And for anyone listening to this podcast who doesn't know the bubble hour, it is a beautiful podcast that Jean has been co-hosting for years and years. It has women on to tell their story of addiction and recovery. And seven years ago and four years ago, I quit drinking twice. Um, When I was in early sobriety, I listened to the bubble hour as my constant companion. Seven years ago, I didn't know a single other person who had quit drinking. And it was such a lifeline for me to hear stories of women like me who had the same thoughts that I had and the same struggles and were telling the stories of not only how they felt, but their really beautiful lives that they're living right now. Ah, that means so much. That's really lovely. And we do, I should say, we do have men on occasionally when I can find one. (laughs) But most of the guests are people that write and offer to tell their stories. And by and large, that's women. I think it's mostly women listening. And so it's mostly women that are telling their stories. I'm so glad to know that it's part of your story. Well, and it's not just mine. So many women I talk to, you know, say that in early sobriety or when they're contemplating stopping drinking and sort of in that really hard place of struggling and going back and forth, listening to the bubble hour, having it in their earbuds, listening to the women's stories where they're like, wow, that sounds exactly like me. And that person is describing what's going on in my heart is so helpful. Yeah. And I I think it reminds us that we're not alone. And I think a lot of people that are listening are in that stage of trying to find out if there is anyone else like them, if someone else's yeah. story sounds familiar. And I'll tell you what, there's over 3 million downloads of that podcast. That is amazing. Crazy. Yeah. About 60 to 70,000 a month download that show. So yeah, I think there's a few other people that are in the same boat <laughs> as us. <laughs> <laughs> that hear themselves in it. It's 60,000 to 70,000 people who are downloading 
those stories every single month. And obviously it meets such a need. And one of the things I loved Mm -hmm. when I was reading your book of poetry was I feel like everybody feels like they know you, which I certainly do. You know, when I have your voice in my ear and talking to so many women and you're sharing little bits of your story um, as women are talking, and I know you have a very, very popular blog that you've been writing, you know, your story from your first day of quitting drinking, but this book of poetry is so much more personal. Yes, it is. So, <laughs> tell me about that. Well, um, I think that I used to be a performing songwriter. And when I knew I had a really good show was when the audience was nodding at times and wiping a tear at times and laughing at times. And what that taught me as a songwriter was that the best songs are not about the specifics. Like if I tell you everything specifically about my life, my shoe size, my bra size, you know, which, which um, number of Clairol dye I'm using, <laughs> my hair those are, those are going to separate us because we're all so different on those surface things. But the deeper we go inside, the more that we're the same. And so as much as we all might enjoy like a country song about, you know, the dog ran down the road, da, 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 that might be fun to sing along to. But the songs we really love are what it felt like to lose your best friend, you know, which is the same as the dog running away. And I think that's what makes this poetry deeply about myself. It's about my experience in losing myself and finding myself again. But when I strip away all the exterior stuff and just get into who I am, I'm probably also talking about who you are and who someone else is because our experiences, when we get right down to it, are very similar. Yeah. And I love that you just said it's the story of you losing yourself and finding yourself again. Because as I read the book, and especially with the the sections that you go through, it really does seem to take women through the different phases of deciding that drinking isn't working for you anymore and getting up the courage to begin and, you know, your hopes and your fears, as well as the process as realizing why you were wanting to escape and numb out and silence those pieces of you that are deep inside and sort of bringing those to the surface and honoring yourself. And that's really beautiful. I was wondering, you know, as I started the book, you have this section beginning and two of the poems in there just seem to capture the thoughts of women, the hopes that they have in why you actually decide to take the leap and, you know, getting out of the Groundhog Day cycle. So I was wondering if you might read to us the poem Begin and maybe why now? Okay. Begin. Begin with the choice to live fully, freely, unafraid to show up such as you are. So tell me what that one means to you. Like, where did that come from? Well, I've been sober for nine years now. So that first day is a long way back. <laughs> I was in a different stage of life when, when uh, I began. And yet I can feel so closely in my heart exactly what it felt like, that thrill of, I'm really going to do it. I'm really going to do it this time. After years and years of trying every day and failing, somehow that day I just knew I could do it. 
and it was so exciting and terrifying. And so I just wanted to open the book with a poem about it being a choice to live, a choice to live and, um, and to be fearless and to be who we really are. That I think boiled it all down to the essence of that moment. And that I had all the other times I had tried to quit drinking, which we could fill in the blank with that, right? It could be quit using drugs or quit using men or quit buying boots or whatever, (laughs) whatever your numbing choice is. (laughs) Um, I was afraid in the past and I I saw it as not living fully to quit drinking. I, I saw it as lack and of, as oppression and as of sadness. And when I finally realized that this thing is killing me and if I release it, I can get myself back and really I can live again. And yes. be who I'm meant to be, not this yes. shadow version of myself that I've settled for all these last years. So that's really what that poem yeah. means to me as I read it. And it's such a tender time. It's such a special, magical time. And we fear it for so long and we resist it for so long. And yet it's I have a lump in my throat, even as I'm discussing it with you now, if you would think for all the time I've spent talking and writing about my recovery, it might be blasé about it, but it's just such a precious moment in life. And just when you write the choice to live fully, I know that I didn't realize until I got some distance from drinking how much drinking was keeping my life and my world small. Both what I thought about what life would look like if I did quit drinking, which was so scary, but also how much drinking had limited the choices that I made and the people I hung out with and what I did with my free time and how you know, I was essentially like my best friend was a bottle of wine and I was hanging out on my couch every night, right? You stop driving after you've been drinking. You stop going to places where there isn't alcohol. Like, God, what, a weekend of yoga with no alcohol? That sounds like a nightmare, you know? Yeah. A canoe trip? Where do you put the booze? Where's the box go? (laughs) So just the choice to live fully and freely. I mean, that is what life becomes. And it's amazing. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. When I decided to stop drinking, therapy was a big part of my sober toolbox. It wasn't just about saying no to opening a bottle of wine. Once I stopped drinking, I had to deal with everything in my life that alcohol helped me push down. And with my therapist, I was able to better understand how my relationships with my husband and kids, my bosses and friends needed to shift to support my sobriety. If you're thinking of starting therapy as part of your journey, BetterHelp is the way to go. It's all online. It's convenient and flexible. It's tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. Therapy can help you become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash someday and score 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com. H-E-L-P dot com 
forward slash someday to get 10% off your first month. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the other poem that I loved and that I'd love for you to read is Why Now? Okay, so I'll tell you before I read it that this poem is really a reaction that I have to the many, many, many letters and emails and comments that I get of people, women in particular, telling me that they can't, like they want to, but they can't because they're just, they just can't right now. There's some reason. (laughs) We've all done that. And um, my response to that is this, why now? Do not ask why now when the better question is, how could I live another moment separated from myself. Yeah. I really feel like when we get that, when we realize that this this isn't about your daughter's wedding next weekend, it isn't about the the class reunion you have to go to or all these reasons why you think you can't do it now because you're you're going to have to participate in some social engagement that's going to require you to be the fun version of yourself that you think needs alcohol in order to exist. Um, It's when you get to that place of, I can't not do this. I can't not be myself anymore. That is just, it's, it's such a wonderful awakening. And it's what I wish for everyone is that we could recovery to me isn't, isn't about recovering some, sobriety that we had before it's about recovering who we are before we started putting on the armor before we started locking ourselves away hiding ourselves separating from ourselves and so for me I was around nine or ten when that started happening and so my recovery has really been about reuniting with that girl that's inside of me not just in an inner child way and that work is important too but also bringing her out and polishing her and letting her breathe and experience this world instead of always hiding her away. And that essence of myself that I've recovered, that's really what the title of the book refers to as the ember ever there is that that spark in me never went out. I never lost it. It was always there just patiently waiting for me to clue in, (laughs) wake up and bring it back to life so that I could be me again. Absolutely. And you don't realize that when you drink and when you get into that cycle of doing it daily and for years, which is what I did, you are separating from yourself more and more and more. And, you know, I I remember, and I think I said this on an earlier podcast episode, but I was walking with my very best friend from when I was 15. And she, you know, we she lives where I live in Seattle. So we had kids together and she's seen me through all of this. And I was 40 when I quit drinking. So that's a lot of years. And I was walking with her, you know, I may have been 20 days since I quit drinking and said, I don't even know who I am anymore. I don't even know like what I do, what I like, what, you know, how to act. And she said, I feel like I finally got my best friend back from when we were 15 and 16 and 17. And that was just. I mean, when you're saying you're separating from yourself, it really does take you away from what brings you joy and your your actual feelings about yourself that aren't what the hell's wrong with me and why can't you cope and all the 
all those negative thoughts that that creep up and get worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not about controlling yourself and tamping yourself down. It really is about laying down all of these ways that we thought we were coping. I guess, you know, they're coping mechanisms yeah. that get yeah. out of c- control. And aspects of our identity that we perhaps overuse because we feel like, gosh, that serves me really well. Being a good girl, that serves me really well. Yeah. People really yeah. like it when I'm when I'm that good girl. Even though that's just it's not necessarily that it's not who we are. It's just that it's only one aspect of who we are. And when we overuse that part of ourselves, we're not being true to ourselves. Yeah. So um, we're trying to protect ourselves, but it's just a little misguided. I explain it sometimes. Um, The idea comes from parts of self, which is um, an aspect of therapy, sometimes known as internal family systems, where we, have sort of these all these aspects of our personality that we we manage and and we use <laughs> to get by sometimes we need to be um a, you know a caring caregiver sometimes we need to be a little more effervescent and the party girl and sometimes we need to hunker down and clean the toilets because somebody's got to do it you know those are all different parts of ourselves and um but our highest self is the integrated, you know, part of it. And so I like to think of it as our highest self is like the palm of our hand and all of those aspects of ourselves are like the fingers. And so sometimes we need to just use one finger to do a job. Um, sometimes we need to use two, but you know, you can't, you can't always just use one finger. Sometimes you need to use your whole hand. And so recovery is kind of like, if we, I think of it as we get stuck in a finger, we get stuck in an aspect of our identity that isn't really all that we can be. It's, it's not necessarily disingenuous. It's just not our full self. And we need to kind of climb back down out of that appendage and get into the palm and really reintegrate with who we are. So that imagery makes sense to me. I hope it makes sense (laughs) to your listeners. It definitely does. And I know that when we talked, when I came on the bubble hour, one of the things we both sort of identified with was the, you know, we are both sort of recovering people pleasers, right? The recovering good girls, not to mean that we don't help others and love others and also always do our best. But that idea that we need to make other people happy to be seen as worthy and to be kept and accepted. And everyone I think goes through that work, when they enter recovery because you you almost have to, right? There's a reason that you coped by wanting to numb out and separate yourself and turn off your brain. The poem you wrote, The Girl Inside, really spoke to me about that sort of process. Could you read that as well? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's quite a long poem, so I'll just read the first part of it. Great. Um, Stay hidden, I said to the girl inside. How can I keep you safe if you laugh so loudly in a crowd? How can I make them like you if you shine in their eyes? How can we fit in this small space I've been given if your bigness is on display? Stay hidden, I said. It's for your own good. You can't go around with your heart blazing heat. The moths will come at us, and so will the cold souls, hands out like zombies, seeking warmth, wanting more, always more. It's too much to bear stay hidden, stay safe. And I would think that writing this book 
was a real challenge, right? Because it's the ultimate step of stepping into your bigness, putting yourself out there, no longer staying small. So tell me about how brave that was of you. <laughs> well, writing these poems was easy because I would never thought I was going to show them to oh anybody. <laughs> Deciding that they really represented um, a tool that I thought would be useful to to, to my sisters in recovery um, made me feel more brave about it. So the book isn't out yet. As we're speaking, it'll be out tomorrow. Yes. And so I'm excited and, and scared. 19th. June 19th. That's right. 2020. And um, it, it is a little terrifying because I really am showing you a very, very private part of myself and telling my story in a way I, I haven't before. Um, but, you know, I, as I as I gathered together these poems and realized um, that there was an arc, yeah. <laughs> I didn't write them in the order that they present in the book. I sort of took them, separated them all out and, and decided, you know, there's an arc here and arranged them in, in the order of that arc. And it really made me realize that this isn't the story of addiction and recovery. This is the story of losing myself and finding myself again. And so I I believe that it's it's a book that will resonate with women who are in any form of trying to change their life and who have lost themselves in a multitude of ways. And so I purposefully did not put alcohol in the title yeah. of the book or it doesn't I don't think it appears at all in the entire book, except maybe on the about the author page. Um, Because to me, it's uh, my addiction to alcohol was a symptom of my lost self. So sometimes a disease of lost self is a way that we talk about codependency Mm -hmm. because codependency is a really misunderstood term, but it's an umbrella term that includes what you were talking about, the people pleasing and the good girl syndrome and the losing ourself behind this mask that we wear. And I really realized that's what this story is about. And it doesn't matter what stage of finding yourself you're at. Um, You can come where you are and see yourself I believe in yeah. these words and in this in this journey and because I think we go through it multiple times really um like we hopefully just get sober once or twice right Casey right <laughs> but like when we stop we stop for good and yet I you know I didn't it's been nine years and I'm still learning so much about myself every day yeah so I feel like that the layers are always coming off and there's something more I learn about myself and everything I've learned before reinforces it. And it's, it's an amazing process. Well, and I think that that is the beautiful thing in life, right? When we're young for self-preservation and as we learn about society and what's acceptable and how you succeed and how you get accolades and all those things you do sort of try to conform and, and stay small. And that's something that you talk about. And then at some point you say, you know, it's all those, you know, I feel like you're, you're, there's something deep inside of you that just tells you this isn't right. This isn't what I meant to be, whether it's those quiet whispers or anxiety or 
anger or resentment that you are pushing down. And that is what sort of spurs you to find yourself. So I love how you described it because once you find yourself and integrate yourself and do that work, that's when you finally live with contentment. Mm-hmm. And you don't need to people please anymore. No, you People pleasing is really manipulation. Yes. It's very control. pleasant manipulation, <laughs> but it is control and manipulation. And it is about making ourselves feel safe by controlling the way others react to us or react in a moment. And once we are really secure within ourselves, we don't need to do that as much. So ironically, you know, the second half of that poem, The Girl Inside, the second half of that poem is is the voice of the girl inside who ends up being the hero of the story, who who tries to save the, the person that's hiding her, you yeah. know? So that's the ironic part to me is that the part of myself that I thought I had to hide away and lock away was really what I needed to bring out. My instincts were 100% wrong. And I had to bring myself out. And this thing that I was so ashamed of about myself, which was just uh, nothing, you know, just, yeah. it, I just felt like I wasn't good enough. And that's never true. Like we, we are all good enough where we wouldn't be here. So yeah, that that's the irony of it is that the part that we're trying to hide is the part we most desperately need to bring forward and heal and learn to live with. Yeah. And the, the sort of misconception that I had about when I was trying to be the good girl and helpful and please others and do the right thing constantly was that if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be nice and kind and good. And the truth is that, you know, my essence, your essence, almost everyone's is to be nice and kind and good. But what you're not doing is the constant effort of worrying what other people think of you and trying to control them. And that exhausting, you know, if I do X, what will they think of me? They will think why. And therefore like you're just being who you are and being honest. And then people like the real you and you have that open, honest connection to them. And that allows them to be honest as well. Mm -hmm. And it's okay if they don't like you. Yes, It's okay. Because you, when you start to value yourself again, you realize that the currency of someone liking you is also your own. You like yourself. And when you think that you don't count, you think it doesn't count if you don't like yourself. I mean, it literally, to me, something didn't happen if no one but me knew about it, you know? Yeah. It just didn't exist until someone else knew about it. So if I was happy, I had to share it with someone so that they could tell me I was happy or I could, it validated the happiness. I always needed that validation. And when we really start being real with ourselves and considering ourselves a valid person, then we don't have to go out seeking that validation all the time from others. Yeah. And I, I'm a big vision board girl. It's kind of funny. Um, But I really believe that putting things up where you can see them sort of replaces the thoughts in your head that aren't helpful, that aren't serving you and remind you on a daily basis of what is true. And there are two that I absolutely love that came to mind as you were talking. The first is stop worrying what other people think of you. Most people don't even know what they think of themselves. Uh, Yeah. And the second one is you will be too much for some people. Those aren't your people. Oh my gosh. 
Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48, so if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep, it is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H.com. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Yeah, that is true. And it, it's it's okay for some people to shrug and walk away, you yeah. know? It's okay if relationships run their course. I love the expression to release with gratitude. Instead of holding on so desperately to friendships that you know, have perhaps run their course, served their purpose, and to be thankful. I'm thankful I had that. I release it with gratitude. Hopefully it comes back yeah. at some point. Yeah. And um, and that was that was quite a revelation for me that I could just let things be. It's okay if, if I'm not someone's cup of tea. Totally yes. okay. And that's hard. But once you do that work, God, it feels good. Yeah, it does. It for, it boiled down for me a lot about feeling safe. I was very invested in being right all the time. And I didn't know that it was one of my children that pointed it out to me. I was telling a story at dinner about this person did this. You know, I had, I had been at a meeting and it yeah. was a contentious meeting. And so I was retelling the story at dinner and I was really lost in the animation and making a really good story of it to my family over dinner. And my son, who I think was 11 or 12 at the time, he just sort of took a beat and looked at me and swallowed his macaroni or whatever. And he said, he said, uh, you sound really excited about being right. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, I, I don't even think he remembers saying that. It was just a, not, a childlike observation, you know. And it was a gut punch to me because I thought, oh, my gosh, he's so right. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I was fairly newly sober. And so I was pretty open to receiving lessons. Yeah. And I dug down in that. You know, what does that? He's right. What is that? What is that that I'm feeling? Why do I need to feel that? And I realized it's how I feel safe is when I feel right or when I feel liked. If I can't feel liked, then I'll settle for being right. <laughs> because you're, you're justified, right? You're... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Justified. And um, it was kind of in letting go of that need to feel safe all the time, of knowing it's just okay. You don't... I don't even know where I got that idea from, Casey. I don't know what... I don't know. Did I fall off my bike when I was three <laughs> there's some there's some core 
thing that happened, I believe, as a child that gave me that message. And it doesn't have to be trauma necessarily. It could, you know, I was a really smart, perceptive little kid, the youngest in the family, tend to be an observer, watching, learning. And like a lot of youngest kids would watch what everyone else did and then try to like, like, insert myself seamlessly you know you don't want to have to have anyone ever see you learn how to ride your bike you just want to show up riding your bike with the big kids one day and I think so I think I did a lot of watching and internalizing and you know when you're a kid you just don't have the emotional intelligence to process all this stuff you're trying to understand and um, so sometimes we carry those little messages into our adult years and we don't even know we they go completely unchallenged especially if we're capable and cheerful and likable and good girl syndrome makes you all of those things so um yeah people tend not to challenge that a lot and i'm really glad that i got the message on that because it was it has really been life-changing for me yeah and it's also trying to protect yourself from criticism or embarrassment sort of proactively, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're trying to, so you're always, (laughs) you're trying to think of how you might be criticized before you get criticized so that you can head it off the pass, you know, right? It's so exhausting. Like, I just can't believe Mm -hmm. the mental gymnastics we used to go through just by trying to control or micromanage what other people thought of us or could possibly think of us. Um, yeah, by not just standing in who you are and being okay if people don't like you. Yeah, exactly. And part of that is is what your own. Th- I think all of it is what you think of yourself, right? And the the poem I also wanted you to read was called Sparks. Okay, Sparks. The sparks from my heart, long perceived as problematic, as harbingers of doom or needless worry, were never to be feared. They were friendly all along. A tap, not a hammer. A bell, not an alarm. Asking for my notice. Whispers of truth in a language I forgot I'd ever known. That's beautiful. Have you you always written poetry? I have. I have always written poetry from the day I learned how to write. And I would skip around the house singing songs that I'd made up. An early memory of mine is being at a, um, my mom was a brownie leader. Do you have brownies? There? Oh, yeah. Do, I would. Your I listeners brownie. brownie? Okay. <laughs> so um, my mom was a brownie leader, which would be similar to Girl Scouts, if you have American listeners. And um, it's for seven to nine-year-olds, I think, is brownies, right? And is that right? Is it yes. younger? Yes. So I, being the youngest in my family, I wasn't old enough to be a brownie, but because my older sisters were, I had to go to everything that they did. And like I said, I had to keep up and move along and all of that. So. Um, I remember skipping around a gym or something while my mom was holding a class and I um, was just entertaining myself, amusing myself. So skipping around this gym, singing some song that I had made up and another woman, I overheard someone say to my mom, oh, what's, what's she singing? And my mom said, oh, she's always singing something, but she makes it up herself. And this woman said, wow, that's amazing. And 
it was the first time that I had that I knew that other people didn't do that. I never knew that. I just thought that was a normal thing to do to to jump around and make up songs and yeah. talk to yourself and so that's something I've always done and um uh I remember writing a poem and submitting it to my teacher in grade 2 that was uh something about it was really angsty like a love poem or something <laughs> in grade <laughs> in grade 2 and so i i feel like my poet i've written poems all my life which morphed into songwriting yeah in my 30s and 40s and then um you know it turned out that i really didn't enjoy performing as a songwriter because i'm not a great musician and i would have a lot of anxiety and so what i love about doing poetry now is that it's really like songwriting but without the the angst and and stress of performing music with it and um it came about a little bit accidentally to be honest with you because i am writing a novel right now this is my second novel i've written one novel which i'm shopping for a publisher so if you have any literary agents listening you know jeanmccarthy.ca <laughs> Great. I was going to ask you about your novel because I'm so curious. Yeah, so I'm actually writing my second novel now while, while my first novel looks for a home. And so the novel that I'm writing right now is about a songwriter who quits drinking. Uh, it's about a singer who loses her voice and quits drinking. And also she starts to write some poetry. So I needed to write a couple of poems for this novel. And then the coronavirus hit and we were all on lockdown and I thought well I guess I'll be finishing my novel and what happened was I couldn't write that novel because the world is in so much flux and it was a contemporary novel that was sort of set in modern day and I don't know what our world looks like anymore so all of this sort of um, uncertainty that we all feel about our world right now is affecting a lot of writers, myself included. So I thought, well, at least I can write the poems for this book. So I sat down to write two or three poems. And when I lifted my head, um, I had written 50. Wow. And I realized, I think I'm on to something here. I really think I've, I've tapped into something. So I had, I had been writing them over the past year, but yeah, this, I was trying to write a novel and I accidentally wrote a poetry book. <laughs> That's amazing. That's and amazing. I think, yeah, thanks. And um, then the decision to actually publish it really came from just feeling like we are all being really creative about the tools that we're using to support recovery right now because we don't have our, our meetings have been taken away from us. Our, all of our usual things, our usual routines have been taken away from us. And I feel like we all need some new tools in our toolbox. And when I looked at these, I thought this, this is something different. This could be a tool in the recovery toolbox for people. And um, I think I need to share it and offer it up, you know, yeah. in that spirit. And I really, I really hope that it is received uh, with as much affection as I offer it. Yeah, I, I 100% think it will. It definitely touched me and I thought it was beautiful. And even though it's your personal story, so much of it resonated with me. Um, all of it, I would say. The one section in the book that I that I wanted to ask you about was you included a different poem for each of the 12 steps. But 
in your recovery and, and on your blog and in the bubble hour, you've been open about not recovering in a 12 step program. So talk to me about how you decided to write about the 12 steps and how you approach that as someone who isn't immersed in that world day to day. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? So this is, this is, this was probably the hardest decision about including these, but it wasn't that hard because of all the people I've interviewed for the Bobble Hour and talked to on many, many retreats. I think I've been on 10 or more different recovery retreats, sometimes as a facilitator and sometimes as a participant. Um, I And I think I've interviewed 300 people for the Bubble Hour now. So I'm always really struck with the affection for which people speak of those steps. And as someone who didn't get sober using those 12 steps, I sort of saw them as sort of prescriptive and and sort of sounding like really patriarchal and and reminded me a lot of going to Lutheran school, high school. Um, uh, it just it gave me that feeling of being really rigid. But that isn't the impression I got as people talked about their experiences of getting sober in the 12 steps. And what I realized is that there's a difference between the, the step as they're written and the experience people have of doing that step. And I wanted to... I wanted to pay homage to that experience that people have going through it, partly as a as a kind of a love letter to all of these beautiful conversations I've had with people about their recovery, but also to illustrate it for people like me who are so unfamiliar with it. And so I feel like that section is particularly wonderful for maybe friends or families of people in recovery who don't understand why they go to these meetings or why, like, aren't you done with that yet? You've been going to those meetings for years. Aren't you fixed yet? Like I wanted them to illustrate the process and the beauty of it and the humor of it. There's so much laughter. I mean, I do occasionally drop into 12 step meetings, women's meetings just to hang out with other sober women. And they're so funny. There's so much laughter in them. And so some of those poems are quite cheeky and quite funny. (laughs) And, um, and some of them are really, you know, sincere and emotive, but that was my, that was my thinking in including that was to sort of give a lyrical take on that process. And the other thing is that um, because a 12-step program is an anonymous program and there's sort of a tradition of not talking about it because it's really important and I understand it that the program doesn't want a poster child. They, they don't want anyone to speak for the program. So people that are in a 12-step program are largely unlikely to write a series of poems like this, even though they may share those emotions, because it is counter to the the culture of anonymity and of attraction versus promotion and that kind of thing. So in a way, I hope that I've given voice to something that maybe the people that have such affection for that program don't feel at liberty to do themselves. But also, it comes partly from my own experience, too, because I have definitely had some of those experiences. I I resourced the steps. I looked at them and thought, why do they do that? What is this step for inventory business? Why do you do that? How does it help? And I would adapt that and do my own version of it. So uh, some of the experiences that I write about are from my own experience. But um, I really hope that it is 
a, a gift to the re recovery community in that way of shining a, a different view on something that people think they know a lot about, but maybe don't. Yeah, definitely. And it, you can absolutely tell that it's coming from a place of love and admiration, even though, you know, you've talked about not, not going through the traditional 12 steps or using that as your path to recovery. You know, I, I hear it all the time when I listen to the bubble hour, you know, I personally didn't come into recovery through a 12 step program either. I don't attend it, but I have gone to meetings in the past when I was sort of starting the journey. And I think that, that anyone who does, does have a you know certain level of respect and and certainly love for for the people in that program because they are honest and and good and kind and welcoming and and all the things um but one thing that that I love about your work on the bubble hour and on your blog and um with this book of poetry and what I'm hoping to do in this podcast is you know help other women um, and men, but my, my podcast is primarily geared towards women who are, you know, stumbling around in the dark, like I was, because with that tradition of, of anonymity, you know, I didn't know anyone who had quit drinking before I had. Um, and I certainly didn't know anyone who was sort of talking openly about, yeah, I used to drink a lot and it was really hard to quit. And it took me to a place that was not good for myself and my family and my mental health and my physical health. And I stopped and I'm so much happier. And here's how I did it. And here's what life is like. And by the way, it's really good. And a lot of the fears I had were just unfounded because, you know, as people to protect themselves and to protect the program and not have a poster child. Um, don't talk about this. It, it does really limit what other people think of people who've quit drinking because they don't hear about it and realize necessarily that they're just like us and that life doesn't suck after quitting drinking. So that's why, you know, the bubble hour was such a gift to me. And I do love that. It feels like there's just been this, explosion of people coming out of the shadows now and all the quit lit books which which are awesome and and funny and you know inspiring um and real and the podcasts and the people just telling their stories i mean i feel like it's opening up the world and shattering the stigma around what it mm -hmm. looks like to decide that this isn't working for you anymore yeah yeah, I, it's exciting. I, the internet is a game changer for sure. Yes. When when I started blogging in 2011, there were only a handful of us that I could find that were doing it. And very quickly, I mean, there's tens of thousands now. I mean, and, and that's great. <laughs> that is great. Um, the more the merrier. And same with podcasts. I mean, the bubble hour was the only one I think for a long time it was started before I joined I it seven yes years. and there's tons now and they're excellent it's there, there's just so many so it's fantastic and what I think this means is that I believe that people are getting the message earlier in their addiction trajectory mm -hmm. and that when we talk about the stages of change, I talk about the stages of change a lot on my show because it just makes so much sense to me. But the the um, 
the stages of change are pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. So before all of this material was available, if someone wondered, am I an alcoholic? Do I have a problem? You know, their resource was to go to a meeting and see if they heard themselves in it. Well, that has to fast track you to action. Going to a meeting is an action. And most of us would resist that. I'm just going to keep drinking for a little while. And that's, I think, where the idea of rock bottom really started to proliferate was that people felt like something terrible had to happen in order to make them jump over the stage of contemplation and or uh, preparation and just go straight into action. But now, um, and by the way, that works for a lot of people and it worked for a lot of people. But it's before. so hard. It's so it hard. It's so to hard. Do. Mm-hmm. And I really think that the internet is raising the bottom because if you start to think, do I have a problem? You can search on your internet. And let me tell you, every day, millions of people do because I know on my blog, I see the search terms of what landed people there. And I know every day people sit down and type that in. Am I an alcoholic? Or how do I know if I'm an alcoholic? Yeah. And um, And by the way, if you're listening and you've typed that in and you're like, what? She knows I typed that. I don't know who you are. I just see a stat that says (laughs) Google sent someone to your page who searched am I an alcoholic. (laughs) So that's how the the mysterious internet works. So um, yeah, so people can stumble onto all this information now. And in their contemplation stage, they can find out that not only are there all these resources, but that people are getting help early and you don't have to keep sliding downhill and that there's this joy in recovery that otherwise you wouldn't have heard unless you took that action to go to a meeting and heard the laughter in the meeting. And, uh, and there's also a lot of other pathways now, you know, we talk a lot about patchwork recovery and how there's just so many different ways. Um, There's the, belief really proliferates, I think, still in a lot of 12-step circles that it's the only way. And if you get sober any other way, you weren't really addicted. And um, I try or not to argue really, with that. Or you won't really be successful, right? It's like yes. you're in denial. You are going to fail. And I think there yeah. are a million living examples out there that that's not true. I agree. And I I take exception to that attitude because I'm proof <laughs> that yes. it's not true. But I don't argue when when I do hear that and it comes up every once in a while. I let it slide and here's why. Because that might be what's keeping that person sober. They may need to go to those meetings and having zero other options might be what keeps them going. And I don't want to take that from them. Yeah. So far better to just smile and nod and and know what I know. And this comes back to that self-awareness that we talked about earlier, where I no longer have to be right. Yes. Before I quit, I would have taken an argument like that and dragged it till (laughs) the end (laughs) And, and held on to those resentments. And uh, and that's an AA concept too, by the way, uh, resentments and yes. letting go of resentments. Uh, so see, I've, I've learned a lot from the program along the yeah. way. But um, yeah, it's really important to know that 
at the, the more that we hear from other people in recovery, the more we learn and see ourselves. And so the whole point of my rambling is to say that I think people are finding out about recovery earlier in the trajectory. And hopefully for at least some of them, it's helping them get into recovery before they have some tragic consequence that forces them into recovery. And the longer you stay in addiction, the longer you let this get a hold of you and physically decline your wellness, the harder it becomes to quit. So if you're not sure and you think maybe you have a problem and, you know, you don't need any more proof than that to quit. Nothing bad is going to happen from you quitting. And um, yeah, I just, I love that people are finding, finding different pathways now. And I think that, you know, you really deserve a lot of thanks because you, you know, like you said, when you started blogging, there were just a few of you. And when the bubble hour started, it was the only one. And it's so important. I mean, I know that I, I first heard about any of this through Stephanie Wilder Taylor. And it was, you know, my son was like a year old. So it was 11 years ago. And I had read all her books, you know, sippy cups or not for Chardonnay and sort of the mom wine culture. And then she blogged that she needed to stop drinking, you know, the queen of the mommy playdates with adult beverages. And, and if she hadn't written to that, even six years before I eventually stopped, I don't think I'd be where I am now. So, you know, the fact that you were brave enough to put it out there and kept going, I think helps so many women. And from what you were saying, the other thing that that I thought was that what really helped me was realizing that 12 steps is not the only way and that I don't need to identify as an alcoholic to decide that drinking is not working for me and that those things don't go hand in hand and it's not required for me, for me to be successful. And that there are a million other ways to decide that you, you know, this isn't good enough to keep going and that you want to try a different approach and that you want to see whether your life gets better without this thing that's making you feel like crap. And so the more people talk about it and as you release your book of fiction and as you release um, your book of poetry and, and the holiday survival guide that you wrote for how to get through the holidays without drinking, um, the better off all of us are going to be, even if people don't struggle with drinking, the more we talk about it, the more people realize that it's not a character deflect and there's nothing wrong with people who decide drinking isn't working for them because by the way, it is addictive in the same way that cigarettes are, right? Uh It's not Uh a moral flaw in these people. It's that the substance is designed to take you down a path and that Uh it happens to a lot of people and it is 100% okay to decide to stop. Uh Yeah, it's really, it's a wellness choice and a perfectly valid one. And this, I really hope that this old sort of just the concept of you, you you don't need to quit unless you're addicted. I call BS on that. Yeah. You know, if you were smoking, I'd say smoking's bad for you. I don't care if you're addicted and smoking a pack a day or just having one on the weekends. Don't do that. It's bad for you. There's nothing good from that. 
And, you know, I think we feel that way about tanning beds and sunscreen yes. and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and certainly at my age, I remember the invention of sunscreen. <laughs> <laughs> Because prior to that, in the 70s, it was like baby oil and trying to get a tan and, you know, sunscreen was counterintuitive. We wanted all the sun we could get. So we've changed our thinking on so many things like that. But it's really, an, a, I, I believe it's, it's a fiction to think that you only need to quit drinking if you've become addicted to that substance. And I, I do use the word alcoholic in talking about myself sometimes be, as a slang, but let's remember that is not a medical term. It is not a medical diagnosis. It is a term that was sort of invented, I think, by the 12-step movement as a way to identify someone who had succumbed to the trajectory of addiction. Yeah. And um uh, so it's it is a, a made up word that is very meaningful and emotional for people that are in that program. Um, when when they're in a meeting and they say, "Hi, my name's Jean, and I'm an alcoholic," you know that that is a loaded term in a meeting. It means I'm telling the truth about myself. I'm taking ownership of my addiction and recovery. Like it means so much in the, in a meeting to yeah. the other people that are speaking that same kind of coded language. Yeah. But if if I'm at a party with a bunch of normies and I say, oh, I'm an alcoholic, well, they don't know what that means. They don't know if that means I'm I'm currently sober or I'm actively using or I'm sober at this party, but I'm going to go home and drink or, you know, they, they don't understand the code because you're not in the right place for using it. (laughs) So, so we've taken a term that was really meant to be used in a specific context, and we're trying to use it in all sorts of different ways. And I think that's where a lot of the understand misunderstanding comes from. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then we have this myth of like, we have to somehow meet this diagnosis that isn't even real in order to quit drinking. So I love just talking about being alcohol free. Yes. The same way my husband is gluten free and um, my kids are peanut free and I'm alcohol free. And people decide to be vegetarian or vegan, right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Resonating with them or working with their body or they have a moral objection or they've made a choice to see if they feel better and they go to a dinner party and, you know, you don't feel like you're ostracized because you want to bring your lentils or your tofu and not eat, you know, or get a vegetarian lasagna, like whatever it is, it's not, it's not a huge indictment on your strength of character that you decide to be a vegetarian and not eat meat. Like it's not a thing. If anything, it's sort of um, looked upon favorably as being self-advocating and and wellness, you know, aware of your wellness and and looking out for yourself. So I think, you know, anyone that is socially concerned about how to tell people that they don't drink, I I say, go with the term, I'm alcohol-free, you know? And you don't don't have to explain why, you know, it's a wellness choice. And the only thing is it makes, sometimes makes other people uncomfortable if they have a wonky relationship with alcohol themselves. Absolutely. And that's when it gets tricky is navigating that. But that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yes, it's a whole other podcast. And there are so many tips and tricks and, and mindset shifts that you can do. And 
Um, we can, there are a million podcasts about it and you can listen to other episodes of this one or to the bubble hour or other things yes. there. Or my book, the unpickled oh. holiday survival yes. guide has a lot about that. Okay. Yeah. I will link to that absolutely in the notes from this episode. Um, the other thing I know that we, I could go on talking to you forever, um, because I love talking to you and um, yeah, you're you awesome. But the one um, poem that you have in there that that I know sort of intimately, and I think a lot of the Bubble Hour listeners will know is I own it. And it's actually you playing the theme song or the music that comes on in the Bubble Hour. It's so empowering and upbeat and beautiful. But um, I think a lot of people listening to the Bubble Hour don't realize that you're playing that, you wrote it, and you're singing it. So tell me about that one. So um, I actually included the lyrics to that song in the book because I'm asked so often about that song. And people that listen to the show hear it over and over again, so it means a lot to them. And um, I had no idea of that when I wrote the song. I wrote it in 2007 and I recorded it in 2008 and I was very much in active addiction when I wrote it. Oh. Um, so it was not written about, about alcohol specifically and it was written about shame. And I, I live in the community that I grew up in. And so all of my stupid decisions as a teenager and as a young woman, I mean, I bump into those people every day at the supermarket. Well, not anymore because we're all in our houses, but <laughs> my life is all around me. My history is all around me. And um, and so I was just, I had encountered a real shame moment and I realized that the only way through that shame was to just stop pretending that that thing hadn't happened and just to own it and just say like I'm not proud of that but yeah that happened and that was that was me and then when I joined the bubble hour which had been in existence for a few years by the time I joined it I was an avid listener it helped me through my early sobriety and um, and then later I, I joined as a host and a producer and they didn't have any theme music and I said well I have like two albums of original music I own all the rights to them like take your pick let me send you a few songs and yeah. see if any of them suit you and Amanda and Ellie I think were the were running it at that time and um and they chose I own it as as the perfect song you know and and um and, it, and when I listened to it from that context I realized oh it is how so it goes to show doesn't it that that it was in me all along because it's, yeah. a, it's a poem so perfectly about recovery and yet I knew it I knew that lesson but I could not apply it to my alcohol yet at the time that I wrote it. You know, it would be several more years before I quit drinking. When it's the idea that life keeps presenting lessons to you until you learn them, right? Yeah, it's true. And it can be in any area of your life, right? Because once you stop drinking, there's all the other things that... Um, that kind of were underlying that, you know, drinking is to some extent a coping mechanism, the way a lot of other things are people pleasing and everything else. And so mm -hmm. once you're able, you know, one of the things I love is that once I quit drinking, I was finally able to deal with a bunch of the stuff underneath it, like anxiety that I had about and scarcity mindset and where that was coming from. And, you know, I am, I am a work in progress as we all are. I am definitely 
not fixed and I don't know that I ever will be, but I am better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ever reaching, ever striving, right? I, I mean, do. that's, that is the beauty of it. And yeah. I think, you know, something happens when, when we're in a, a group, a recovery group, it happens after we've been together for a little while. I don't know if you've had this experience. Oh, I've been to a couple of different retreats and sharing circles in Seattle. And I, I love, I love my sober people. So uh, at some point after you've been in conversation for a little while with people, you realize this person is so beautiful. Have you had that experience? Oh, yes. Yes. And then you look around the circle and you're like, oh my gosh, that woman is so beautiful. The next woman is, she's breathtaking. And what's happening is that we start to see each other's essence and our, the need for perfection. Like we can meet each other where we're at and be exactly who we are. And I know that next time I see that person, they're probably going to be uh, you know, a little bit farther into their journey, maybe they backslid a little bit, but they're, they're working on themselves. So they're yeah. always going to change. But when you're in that mindset, you're really receptive to beauty and you really emit a lot of beauty. And it's almost like a perfume in the air that this, just this magical thing happens. And I'm realizing, you know, I'll be talking to someone and I'm like, I'm just overwhelmed with their beauty. And I realize yeah. that it's that soul to soul thing is starting to happen where I've laid down my defenses that make me judgmental and, and uh, fearful. And I'm, I'm operating from this soul conversation experience. Yeah. And, and I really, I love that. And so when you talk about being a work in progress, that's, that's what I see is that is the most absolutely beautiful version of ourselves that we can be. Yeah. That is a perfect way to end this. Um, I have so many thoughts going that I could say, but I want to I want to make sure that people know how to get your book. It is wonderful and beautiful, and it is coming out tomorrow if you're listening to this on the first day. And if not, it is out there. So tell us how to find your book and also how people can learn more and get in touch with you or follow you if they are inspired to. Oh, thank you. Um, the due to COVID, distribution of books is a little tricky right now. So, um, ebooks are easy to get, and the Ember Ever There is on Kindle, Kobo, and Apple Books. And uh, you can order it from your local bookstore. They can get it from their catalogs. And it's also on Amazon. And my website is jeanmccarthy.ca. And I have a link there for books and you can get an order link from it there. And also you can follow me on Instagram, Jean McCarthy writes, and I uh, have a link in my bio too, where you can go and, and find out about books as well. And I'm on Facebook and Twitter and all the things, but probably the, probably the most current place is, is my website and Instagram. Perfect. And I will have links to all of those in the show notes of this episode. So that will be wonderful. And uh, if you guys are, you know, it'll be on wherever you, wherever you're listening to this, there will be episode details, but you can always go to hello someday coaching.com forward slash podcast, and you'll be able to find all the notes um, and all the ways to get in touch with Gene. 
So thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And I so appreciate your work and your time. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. Oh, hey, it's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.